Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 65, Knowledge That Transforms. How do we move our knowledge of God from our heads all the way down to our hearts? What does the word hate really mean? Is there more than one antichrist? And what does that word even mean? We've got lots of questions this week as we study 1 John chapter 2. Hi, good to be together again today. We are going to be going through almost all of uh, chapter 2 of 1 John today. And and there's several sub-themes, which I'm going to outline. But, but overarching is uh, John takes us back to God's commandment uh, to love. And, and he kind of defines what that is, what true and false love are. And then secondly, he talks about antichrists, and he, and he brings warnings about them. Uh, one of the things we're going to see today is that for some, our understanding of antichrist is the antichrist. And it's actually very different from how John uses the term. By the way, he's the only one uh, in the whole Bible who uses the term antichrist. So we'll press ahead now, starting at verse 3, the test of knowing him. By now we know that we know him. Notice the double no, very intentional. By now we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. No is a major theme here. And John is emphasizing this with uh, using repetition throughout this verse. And it's because the, the, the cessationists, and remember we learned all about those in the previous couple of, of uh, episodes, they claim to have special knowledge. Now, we may be surprised to know this still happens today. Uh, one of the, the signs of this kind of special knowledge, which is really Gnostic, uh, is a claim to exclusiveness or uh, that be, we're a uniquely chosen people of God or God's given us a higher calling than other church members. To hear this, and I've heard it, probably you have too, is a modern expression of the very Gnosticism that John is dealing with. Now, to know John, to know God has several implications. Uh, one, from, from Old Testament time, it meant to be in covenant with God. And there's a wonderful verse in Jeremiah 31, 34. It's a great, great promise. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. This is a summary statement of what it means to know God. And notice, it's, it includes, it's connected to the blessing of forgiveness. A second aspect of of knowing is is John seventeen three in in Jesus' uh, priestly prayer. It, it, it's the classic definition. Now this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So knowing God for John equals eternal life, and so eternal life is present and not future. We have we have by and large pushed. Uh, pushed eternal life off to heaven. But for John, it starts right now. 
The theme of knowing and being assured that we know God is central to this entire letter. John talks about it eight different times. Now, the interesting thing about knowledge for the Gnostics is they valued Jesus not for salvation, but for him being a source of kind of a mysterious secret knowledge. The fourth point here, John is teaching that obedience is not a requirement, but an outcome of truly knowing God. We need to really hear that. Obedience is not a requirement, but an outcome. It's, it's, that's like a big reversal to, to what many of us have thought about obedience. It's an outcome that just happens as we enter into a relationship of really knowing Jesus. Uh, you know, as we press into him, and we're going to talk about abiding in a moment, but, but deep down, our desires change. Someone asked me that just the other day from, from Psalm 37. He gives us the desires of our heart. I said, that's because when we press into him, he changes our heart and therefore changes our desires. True knowledge is transformative. It's not head knowledge. We, that part of why I'm taking us through 1 John is to help us move from kind of this head knowledge, propositional truth, to heart knowledge, to transformation. And this kind of experiential knowledge is truly transformative. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that wonderful verse. He says that we are being transformed as we, as we view as we gaze upon him, as we behold him. This is why Jesus said, by their fruit you shall know them, because they'll be transformed, and transformed lives bring good fruit. They can't do anything else. With Christ as the source, this is inevitable. Fifthly, knowledge as something experiential interactive, relational, versus knowledge about. Now, probably close to 40 years ago, I, when I was uh, mentoring uh, young men, I would have certain books that I would give them. I, I'm a great lover of books. And one of them I gave early on was, was J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. It's a wonderful book. It's a terrific book about the attributes of God. But I think really it should be titled Knowing About God because, because it doesn't lead us into how to know him experientially. You know, there's a real danger for us of focusing on God's attributes because what happens is we define him by the attributes that we recognize and we kind of put him into a box of our own principles of how he has to act. I remember in early days hearing, well, God can never violate his word. The scriptures are wonderful. You know that and I know that. But Jesus is the word. And, and the triune God is not contained by the scripture. So really, a, a big theme that comes through this chapter again and again is, is John calling us to, to learn to recognize God's voice, to recognize his leading. Beloved, we can read the scriptures for information or for intimate connection. 
When I read the Gospels, here's something I do sometimes. When I'm reading the Gospels, I will replace uh, Jesus or he for you. So rather than he went about healing the sick, you went about healing the sick. Just that pronoun change helps me to read the Gospels again with more interactiveness, more intimacy with Jesus. And also another point in this passage, number six is if we keep his commands. We'll know him if we keep his commands. What commands? Is John calling for a kind of Christian legalism, which by the way, we can fall into very easily. I don't think so. I don't think John is talking about a set of instructions or commandments like the Ten Commandments. Instead, a relationship with God in which we respond to whatever he asks of us. You see, it's it's much more fluid. It's much more immediate. It's, it's about that kairos right now time. God will, or John will give us a picture of Christ's command uh, in chapter 3. We'll look at that next week more fully. But and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commands us. So let me say this again. I think that what he's talking about here is a relationship where we respond to what he's saying. Now, you know, one of the problems is, by and large, we do not really expect Jesus to ask us to step out in radical, immediate, risky obedience. We, we, we kind of contain him to the safe things. It is in this kind of, of hearing and obeying this kind of command that when he says, I want you to do this. That's what just opens our lives up. It's always risky. I promise you, We risk is the only way we grow in our relationship with him and in the activity of the kingdom. My whole adult life has been marked by times where always he totally surprised me. He said, I want you to do this. And usually it was really risky. I want you to sell your car and your house and your furniture and pack up your kids and move 3,000 miles away because I want you to plant a church. I want you to, to move here and, and I want you to start another church. I want you to leave pastoring and begin this thing that I'll show you, which became Impact Nations. Every time we, 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 obeyed him because we know that he speaks. Every time we obeyed him in the specific, in the now, in the tangible, it opened up a whole new dimension to our lives and it opened up a whole new depth in my relationship with the triune God. Let's move on. Verse 6, by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought also uh, himself to walk just as he walked. To abide in him, to live in him. In its, in its various forms, it's, he, he uses this word meno 
25 times, but specifically for abide 10 times in this letter alone. 63 times in all of his writing. Abiding is a central theme in for John in all of his writing. And, and it means, the word meno means to live, to abide, to remain, to stay, to dwell, to continue, and sometimes the most elusive, to wait for. The classic abiding passage is in John 15. Abide in me and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's a lesson. We It's a life lesson we keep learning and learning and learning, and he takes us deeper and deeper into it. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. At his heart, abiding means drawing life, moment by moment, from Christ in me, Christ in you. Back to that verse I love so much, John 14, 20. I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you. For John, eternal life is not something we aspire to. It is our life right now. Well, let's look at the next kind of subject, a new commandment. Start at verse 7. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet, I am writing you a new command. So the first thing we see, he begins with dear friends or beloved, depending on your translation, same word. John uses this address 10 times in his three letters. It reflects his heartfelt affection for those to whom he's writing. You know, over the years, I often find myself spontaneously using this phrase when I'm speaking to the church or speaking to groups. I maybe even have used it today. It reflects both affection and a heart connection. There's nothing distant or hierarchical in John's writing. Now, I just want to say something here. I believe there's a great need for pastoral leadership that is loving and uh, nurturing and shepherding more than positional. Open affection always flows out and it always reproduces itself. John says in this passage, you've got an old and a new commandment. At first, this seems confusing, contradictory. So what is John getting at? You know, it's interesting because... <clears throat> When I look at various commentators, there's two different understandings of this. One is the old command goes back to the Old Testament. For example, Leviticus 19.18, that, that we're to love our neighbor. Yet, it is new because the command to love has explicitly been given by Jesus. Remember in John's Gospel, chapter 13, he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So, so John reiterates this in his second letter, which we'll look at 
weeks from now. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new command to you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that, as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. But then there's another kind of approach that commentators take. Jesus' command is now old for John, because he heard Jesus give this commandment 60 or more years earlier. John is saying that what is a new commandment for his listeners is actually an old commandment, and it has never changed. So what's his point? John is not imposing a new obligation on the church. He's only reminding them of what they have known from the beginning. Now, just to make this applicable for us, there are seasons and there are situations when we need to be brought back to this most fundamental of Jesus' commands, especially when we think that what others have done or, or the nature of the conflict that we're in allows an exception to loving others. So we need to be brought back to that. Verse 8 to 11. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Just a reminder from the beginning of this series, I shared that there's two overarching themes. John emphasizes in the first half of this letter that God is light. And in the second half, that God is love. So now we see him speaking again about light and darkness. And he uses them as a metaphor. Of course, light means love. Darkness means opposition to God. More specifically, I think for John, it means the realm where where sin predominates. And this is why, because it's a realm. Sin isn't that, oh, you know, I took an extra cookie, just to be very superficial. It, it's bigger than that. It's a force. And this is why we must flee sin. It's so important. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us uh, from temptation. Uh, it's really keep us from the place of temptation. Lead us not into temptation, by the way. I just misquoted. Is really better translated Keep us from the place of temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Sin is more than individual acts. It's a place where the powers are at work. Sin is the arena of frontline spiritual warfare. We need to understand that as we're faced with temptation. It's frontline spiritual warfare. He goes on to say, The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Notice that that John points them to the good news that the kingdom is advancing, not that it will advance or come one day. It is advancing right now. Folks, we can learn from John the encourager, the one who overcomes fear with faith in the goodness and mercy of God. That's why 
I have become convinced, and all of us here at Impact Nations are convinced of the the power and the and the vital foundational importance of a beautiful gospel. Let's look a little bit at how he uses the word love and hate. The the Greek word for hate is misale. And yes, it can mean to despise, to detest. But it also has another meaning that I think we overlook or maybe we never knew. It means something more nuanced as well. It means to show disfavor or to disregard. So we can read this and say, well, this isn't for me. I don't hate anyone. This doesn't apply. But just as darkness is absence of light, hate is absence of love. You know, by this definition, we can be guilty of of hate in many subtle ways. By, By ignoring someone, by avoiding them, by taking someone for granted, not valuing them, not seeing Christ in them. <coughs> Pardon me. Or even just failing to see another. You know, so many people feel invisible. By this definition, this is all hate. People are created to respond to love. We are created to be seen, to be affirmed, to be valued. This is love. It's very tangible. To fail to consciously choose to see another, to affirm another, is to progressively become spiritually blind. That's what this verse is telling us. We can cover or deny this blindness with more spiritual activity in our lives, more Bible reading, uh, attending more church meetings. But Jesus said, remember in um, Matthew 9, 13, he said to the religious people, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, not religious activity. Well, the third section I called a song for the family. And uh, some commentators say this this is the central passage that it's the hinge point for the entire letter. And really, it is a song or a poem, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. But let's just look at this now, verses 12 to 14. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. It's really like a song or a a poem in two stanzas. And John wrote it this way, both for emphasis and to help them remember. Remember, it it was an oral tradition in those days, probably... Uh, no more than 5% of people were literate. So he's, he's writing this to help them remember and let it sink into their hearts. And notice that he's writing in the second person, you. 
He's very deliberate about this. This makes this passage even more personal. It's a very affirming passage. John is intentionally building up his spiritual children who've been in the midst of a really shaky time because of the secessionists. Now, at first reading, it seems like he's addressing three groups of people, but really it's only two. Dear children, John has addressed the believers repeatedly as dear children through this letter. This is the third time he's going to use this expression eight times in the letter. And it's his unwavering expression of affection for the whole community. They're all included in this. And now he breaks it down more specifically. Fathers is likely those who have the longest history with the Lord. Some commentators say it's just the older ones. But as you read the whole context of it, I think really it's it's those who have the longest history with the Lord uh, in fellowship with him. And the only other place in all the New Testament where this word fathers is used like that is in 1 Timothy 5.1. Young men likely are those newer believers. Uh, It could just mean younger people. And he says, I'm right to you because you have known him who is from the beginning. John is so careful in every word, and it's multi-layered so often. Now, we looked in an earlier episode as this uh, on this word beginning. Uh, it's used eight times in John's letter, RK. And, and it, it really denotes the gospel as it was first heard by John's churches. But more than that, it refers to Christ, the one who was from the beginning. Uh, beginning, that word RK, doesn't simply mean that which comes first. It's got a broader meaning. It, it really means the source of something uh, or the origin, uh, that by which everything begins to be. It also can mean the active cause, the first place or rule. I think he's saying more than just from when you first heard, but he's pointing right at Jesus. Raymond Brown points out that one of John's meanings is that Jesus himself is the Arche. And of course, John says this at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Arche, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. John's being highly suggestive here of greater meaning, something much deeper. And he calls us throughout this whole letter, just like in his gospel, to to start to look beyond the immediate meaning of the words. The other thing I want us to notice in this passage is that John is very purposely using family language. Uh, Dear children, young men, fathers. And uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this this transition he has from neighbor to brother. Uh, Tim and I talked about this a little bit uh, after the first or second episode because I said this is part of what John's doing in this letter. In all three synoptics, we're reminded of the great commandment to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. As, as Luke makes really clear in chapter 10, there's always a great tendency in everyone to want to define or categorize who our neighbor really is. But John seems to collapse these two commandments that are in the synoptics into one thing. John moves uh, neighbor further along 
to dear children, fathers, brother. I think in this passage, John is saying all people are your family. What would it mean for us to truly think of all people as our family, as our brothers and sisters? You know, neighbor is really a very nationalistic word in our day. What we see uh, Americans are neighbors, or if you're a Canadian or an Aussie, they're, they're your neighbors, but not those who are way over there in India or in a Muslim nation, not asylum seekers, refugees, they're not our neighbors, even though the Bible tells us 59 times that they are. John is saying to us that in the 21st century, everyone is family. So 1 John, just like his gospel, presents us with a higher, more, more complete understanding of Christ and of the Jesus way. Well, let's move on. The fourth section here is do not love the world. And I love the translation from the New Living Translation here for verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Isn't that interesting? Either or. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father but are from the world. I encourage you on your own, just read those verses in the, in the New Living Translation because they, they unpack uh, some of the other translations. For John, the world is all that stands in opposition to God, that is in rebellion to him. God loves the world as something that needs rescuing, right? For God so loved the world. He loves, they need rescuing, redeeming, saving. He never turns his back or gives up on the world. Whenever you hear anything that is supposedly prophetic, or even you hear a kind of preaching that in any way sounds like we're giving up on that terrible world, that is not of the Spirit of God. I'll just come right out and say it, because God never gives up on the world. Now, when he says the world, he's not, he's not referring to, to God's creation. He means a whole way of life that lies under the power and influence of the evil one. That sphere that is both under the influence of the powers and has its own character, which sets it it's in the world in opposition to God. He says, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Jesus already said you can't serve two masters. Although, by the way, the world will always tell us that we can. It will always offer us trades and compromise. Jesus says, no, it's one or the other. <coughs> Excuse me. To let our eyes become set on the things of the world is to abandon the eternal for the temporary. It's a very bad trade. The enemy and the powers that be always want to draw our eyes away from eternal heavenly perspective. We've got to always fight this. 
Verse 16, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievement and possessions. These are universal temptations. And, and, and for some of us, maybe if we're, we're in a time we're not hooked by material things or, or carnal pleasures, and yet we're easily hooked by the pride of life. We want others to admire what we have accomplished. God is or John is challenging us to question the world's value system, even when it looks spiritual. You know, our failure to do this in the Western church has led us to a Christianity in which there is no statistical difference on any markers between the church and the world. And that's because we have lost our grip on verse 15 and 16. Let's move on. Warnings against being deceived by the cessationists. So now John has just been in encouragement and he's going, he makes kind of a hard turn here to warning because the cessationists are a very real threat to the community. He identifies Antichrist as those who were once members of their church community and have now left, but continue to try to influence. Now, John gives the church three protections against them. Number one, the church is to remember the truth that they have uh, heard from, what they have heard from John uh, from the very beginning of the church. Secondly, to recognize that deceivers, that's antichrist, by their denial that Jesus is the Christ. Thirdly, to remember they have an anointing from the Holy Spirit that continues to teach them so they do not need the cessationist to help them. And I'm going to unpackage that last one in a few minutes. So let's look at what he's saying against the antichrist. Little children, I'm starting at verse 18. Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming even now. Many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. We went out, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Jumping down to verse 22, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father. Now, he says it's the last hour. By the way, this is the only place in the New Testament this term is is used. But it refers to, to the new era, the last days that began with Christ's incarnation. So, the most dominant theme in this whole section of 18 to 27 is the issue of Antichrist. Now, especially in evangelical circles, much has been written and preached about the Antichrist. Now, you may be interested to know that the Antichrist has been identified in a massively wide array of ways through history. the earliest days, we, there's literature on all of this. The Antichrist was obviously Nero. Oh, it isn't Nero. Oh, it's whoever attacked the Roman Empire. Oh, it isn't that. Uh, the Pope, John the Fifteenth, Pope Gregory the Seventh, 
Uh, John Calvin was called the Antichrist. No, pardon me, John Calvin, John Knox, and other reformers called the Pope the Antichrist. In our own lifetime, Ian Paisley uh, from Northern Ireland, he identified Pope John Paul II as the Antichrist. All of them say this is who it is. You know who, who else was identified as the Antichrist in evangelical literature? Mikhail Gorbachev, Henry Kissinger, and almost every one of the U.S. presidents at one time or another. Now, John is the only one in the Bible who uses this term. And he uses it here in this letter, and he uses it in Revelation. A few things stand out. Number one, clearly, the early church expected the coming of a powerful Antichrist figure. Number two, a distinction was made between the Antichrist figure who will appear near the end, that he writes about in Revelation, and the lesser Antichrist figures already seeking to influence the church. Notice throughout this passage, there's no definite article. It never says the Antichrist. It just says Antichrist. The function of both the final figure and the many Antichrists who precede him is to deceive people. There is still much popular mythology regarding the Antichrist. Many books have been written. <laughs> Movies have been made. But John's point is not to provide clues to his identity, which, by the way, inevitably we, see, we identify as one of our opponents, but to see the evil of schism and discord and its destructiveness. John is warning about Antichrist who used deception to lead the church astray and to cause division in that process. So here he's talking about the cessationists. This is the kind of deception that has occurred throughout church history. At their core, Antichrists are people who are being used by the powers that be, whole systems of deception. I'm going to go out on a limb for a few minutes. One of the clearest examples of Antichrist, of this deception, in our day is the rise of Christian nationalism. And it's fascinating to me that over the last just two months or so, Christian nationalism keeps popping up in secular media where they're identifying it. But we've seen it for quite a while. And Christian nationalism is based on motives and values that are in diametric opposition to the gospel, the Jesus way. Just consider for a minute the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. They're absolutely antithetical to, to grabbing power and control. That agendas that in, include keeping refugees out and holding on to the right to own assault rifles and seeking to control various levels of government. Now very much it's gone down to the school board level. Now, in order to try to alter the history that is being taught to children. Folks, all of these things, all of these aspects are opposite to the non-violence, kin kinetic, cruciform love of the Jesus way. Christian nationalism is an oxymoron. That's like jumbo shrimp. But it's always been highly seductive 
in its various forms. It goes all the way back to Constantine. In 313, when there was this seduction that, oh, instead of being in opposition to the church, the, the, the state will, will <laughs> walk in, in unity with the church. And that began something that, that caused all the way through church history that the church tries to get itself close to the power structures of the state in order to get authority, to get their agenda passed. You know, right now there's another uh, variation of Christian nationalism. It's, it's the seven mountains. And, you know, I first heard this the, 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 the man who termed the phrase, uh, I heard him say it when personally when I was in a gathering 21 years ago, I think it is. The seven mountains where we, the church, are going to control the seven spheres, power spheres, education, politics, medicine, business. It is an old lie. It's Christian nationalism. And it's an old seduction, and it never, ever, ever in 2,000 years has led to anything Christ-like or anything good. I'll move on. I didn't sugarcoat that, did I? Okay. What we have in this passage for the first time is uh, John is uh, giving direct, clear reference to what the cessationists are teaching that they deny that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, a great theologian, Raymond Brown, let me give you a quote. The debate was whether the man Jesus could be the same person as the divine Christ. For them to agree, that's a cessationist, that Jesus was the Christ would mean that his humanity and the way he lived were essential for understanding his role as the Christ, the Son of God. For John the author, Jesus means the incarnate word in his life and in his death, while the cessationists would acknowledge the pre-existent word as the Christ, but with the incarnation adding nothing essential. John is saying that anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is an antichrist, and the denial is both a denial of the true identity of Jesus and a denial of the Father. Let's look at the next section. Let his anointing guide you. I love this. Starting at verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing uh, teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. These verses have always been very special to me. When I was beginning, uh, I just planted my first church. And I was obviously a young man, and I was trying to learn. And, and I reached out to one of my two spiritual fathers, Pastor Bob Birch. And he flew 3,000 miles to come and be with us. And we were just praying a group of us together one evening, and Pastor Bob was with us. And suddenly, the Lord gave me a clear vision. 
I don't get a lot of visions. But why this made me just jump, this was in 89, is because in 85, I was at a John Wimber conference that was just pivotal in my life. And and um, the Spirit of the Lord came down, and I was on my face, and I had this clear, clear vision, this beautiful garden, and there was all these things in it. But uh, But there was a barrier. It was like ice, and I couldn't get through, but oh, I could see it. That was in 85. Now, Pastor Bob, as I'm on the, my knees or my face on the floor, he doesn't know what Jesus is doing with me, but he puts his hand on me and he spoke these words over me, that uh, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and as he did, the Lord took me right back to that first time, and right in front of me, I watched all the ice dissolve. So this verse, that may not be directly involved with, with teaching this passage to you, but I wanted you to know why it was so special to me. It was one of the great markers in my life. And again and again, it's pressed me into just really tuning my spirit into the Holy Spirit to direct me in the various spheres over the years. So John is telling them that the Holy Spirit has already revealed the truth of the gospel to them. They don't have to be insecure or uncertain that they're missing out on the truth uh, because of what the cessationists claim. In, in the Gospel of John, Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would always be with them to teach them. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Beloved, this is why before reading the scriptures, ask the Holy Spirit to bring his revelation, to speak to you spirit to spirit through the scriptures. Remember what I shared earlier, the fulfillment of God's promise in Jeremiah 3134, remember, no longer shall they teach one another or say to one another, know the Lord, for they will all know me. The indwelling by God himself is the church's greatest defense against the cessationist deception. That is what John is telling them. You know, there's an application here for us today when we are feeling unsure or confused And is there not times like that for all of us? That's when we deliberately turn to the triune God and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Colossians 3.15 has always been a key verse for me. That uh, to, to let the peace of Christ rule, it means umpire in your heart. I want for the peace of Christ to come and umpire direct in my heart. Verse 24 and 25, let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. There's that word again. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Do you think he's trying to make a point about abiding here? And this is what he's promised us, eternal life. So John returns to a foundational word and a concept that's in all of his writing, abiding, 
Everything for John is about relationship, about abiding with God. It is the beginning, it is the middle, it is the end. John is telling them, both exhorting and comforting them with an assurance to remain in what they've heard and believed, to not be led astray, to not become unsure. Let me give you another application for this. When you're reading the scriptures, meditate on what you're reading. That means be still and pray a verse slowly and say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? What are you saying? This meditation is a vital part of what it means to be in abiding relationship. And then, of course, he he brings us back to eternal life. The reason why Jesus came was for us to enjoy a living, vital relationship with God. This is the joy of eternal life. It's not a future hope. Yes, it is, but it's bigger. It's right now. In his gospel, John has already given an all-encompassing definition of eternal life, which I gave you earlier, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So in chapter 2, John covers many things. The life of abiding in him. John uh, moving us from seeing others as our neighbors to seeing them as our family. The, The coming of Antichrist. The anointing from the Holy Spirit. The truth of experientially knowing God. But I want to finish with a a little bit of a water-to-wine reading. For those who followed through the Matthew series, you know we talked about reading in multiple levels. The the, the literal meaning, the moral meaning, and the spiritual or water-to-wine reading. So I just want to share a little bit, make this personal. So as we've seen today, John uses light and darkness as a metaphor for love and hate. And, and remember, we've learned that hate goes beyond disdain to, to ignoring. But the Lord's been speaking to me about light and darkness in my own heart, in a whole other dimension. Let's quote John again. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Yes, of course, this refers uh, to how we relate to others. But the Lord has been showing me another kind of light and darkness in my own life. Beyond good or bad attitudes uh, or behavior toward others. It includes that, but he's taken me deeper. This is why I'm calling it a water-to-wine reading. I'm seeing light as his presence. Now, Beloved, I can gradually close myself to abiding with him and substitute it with Bible reading, with reading good spiritual books, even with intercession. But if darkness is simply the absence of light, that is, of presence, then I can lose my way. What John calls walking in darkness without even knowing it because of the compensating substitutes that I put into my own personal life. Anytime I am not desiring to really pull aside and abide in his presence, I'm beginning to move into what John calls darkness. Now, this has got nothing to do with disappointing God or him being angry with me. It has everything to do with where I am drawing my life from today.
Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. God bless you. I'm going to sit down with Tim in a minute or two, and we'll talk through some of this. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. All right, so just before we jump into today's discussion, I wanted to share a video with you. A few episodes back, you heard us talking about rescuing children from slavery in India. Uh, Earlier this year, my wife and I were actually in India. We got to see uh, the work that's being done in the brick factories. Uh, And by work being done, I mean both the children doing work to make uh, bricks, but also the work being done by our partners, uh, by Impact Nations, to rescue children from that life of slavery. Um, Before you watch the video, I just want to let you know, if you'd like to participate, if you'd like to rescue a child from a life of slavery today, uh, do that at impactnations.com slash bricks. Uh, for every $130 you give, you will be absolutely changing the life of a child uh, and their entire future. All right, here we go. Hey, it's Tim here with Impact Nations. I am standing right now in a brick factory in North India. Uh, you can see the smokestack behind me. That's the brick kiln where they are going to bake the bricks that you can see all around me here. These bricks that I am surrounded by have actually been made by children, some of them as young as five years old. They spend their days, they spend their life making bricks. As they get older, they'll be working inside of that factory behind me in the hot furnace uh, where they bake the bricks. These children uh, are one of many generations often who have worked in these brick factories uh, due to being in debt to the brick factory owner. Impact Nations since 2019 has had the privilege of actually rescuing as many as 1,600 children from brick factories just like this one. Uh, We now have relationships uh, with families in uh, four different brick factories and we continue to make those relationships. And you can participate for only $130. We can actually uh, pay all of the expenses involved in getting a kid to school. $130 is going to cost cover all of their registration fees. It's going to cover their their bags and their uniforms. Uh, school supplies, all of the things that they'll need to go to school. Uh, One of the great things about being at school is that they're going to get a nutritious meal every single day, uh, which is a huge deal because these families are living on almost nothing. Uh, In fact, we have encountered families that oftentimes are mixing uh, clay uh, brick dust into their food just to try to supplement it. That's how hungry they are. So uh, I would invite you to come participate. Join us for $130. You can take a kid out of a brick factory and send them to school where their entire future will change. All right. I have too many questions and not enough time. So we're just going to see where this goes. Uh, it, by the way, as always, uh, if you, the listener or viewer, have questions, send them to podcast at impactnations.com. Uh, I'm sorry if I haven't got back to you on some of those. I've got a few piling up. We got a few of them coming in, but they always get read. So please uh, send us an email. I love to see them. Uh, I have uh, a real simple question, actually. You just finished talking about abiding and uh, really interesting uh, about kind of slipping into darkness over time where you're, when you're not abiding. Mm-hmm. And I, I can almost hear some listeners saying, listen, I'm going through the motions. I read my Bible, I'm praying, but I don't feel like I'm abiding. I'm not experiencing that eternal life you're talking about. What am I missing? Or when's it going to get better? I'm ready to just quit. 
I guess, and and we have heard the term dry season. I think that's a good Christianese term, uh, and I think that's what I'm describing. Have you ever encountered in recent history dry seasons, and how do you how absolutely do you, how do you get out of them? How absolutely, do you, how do you move on? Um, I know that he never changes, mm-hmm. and um, and yet I know there's seasons of grace and seasons where it's hard. I I do keep on. I do keep reading the scriptures, but I make I have to make myself more than ever begin with Lord, come Holy Spirit. What do you want to say to me? Mm-hmm. Uh, through the I need to stop more. I need to. But I keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to be quiet. Sometimes my quiet, literal quiet time, um, that's all it is. It becomes like my sacrifice to him. Now, um, I'm pretty sure we're going to have uh, Susan Carson yeah. uh, uh, come very soon. And we, we're going to talk specifically. We're going to give a whole session to abiding. Yeah. What it means. Because she's really given her whole ministry to that. Yeah. So that's it. You keep on, but you don't just keep on. Well, just keep reading your Bible. Just keep saying your prayers. No, keep on with what you know. Lord, here I am. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, looking forward to having Susan on, too. She yeah. was, she was she's at the conference. Terrific. She's fantastic. Yeah, it um, was, there was, I was going to say standing room. It was practically sitting on the floor room only. Yeah. I was actually literally sitting on the floor at the oh, back of our seminar. So, yeah, that's what it was. Um, hey, Christian nationalism, you, uh, you took aim at that today, which I think you were real clear on. So um, I don't want to kind of rehash that. But what I do want to ask is this. Um, how do we as Christ followers – Engage in the political process in a healthy way because I don't think it's wise to just completely disengage uh, and say, well, you know, Christ doesn't call us to uh, bring about kingdom transformation through the political process. But, or maybe we are, I don't know. How do we, how do we engage in a really healthy you way? You are asking one of the most complicated questions you yeah. can because uh, in 40 years I haven't completely worked my way through this. Yeah. Um, I have to begin at the heart level, what a surprise. Yeah. And I have to say that Jesus is my standard. Yeah. And there's no other standard. Yeah. And the epitome of that would be the Sermon on the Mount and the Upper Room Discourse. Yeah. And that that becomes my standard. But yeah. at the same time... um. I can never fall into being antagonistic, mm-hmm. um, and I don't even tend to be confrontational. I do stand up for truth, so that when when I'm confronted at a personal level with yeah. Christian nationalism, I say, well, you know, I don't really feel the same because Jesus said this, mm-hmm. and that's about as far as I go. But in terms of getting engaged... You know, one of my sons is involved politically mm-hmm. yeah. and being, uh, you know, effective, and it comes out of his uh, Jesus way convictions. Yeah. But he he feels clearly called to that. I think the biggest thing is for us not to get all antagonistic. Yeah. I'm going to talk a little bit next week about not having kind of this persecution complex mm. that so easily can come yeah. into the church. Um, but 
recognize what it is, because I'm telling you, it's not just a difference of opinion. Yeah. It's a different spirit. It is Antichrist, and it is deception. Yeah. And uh, in its most extreme versions, I think it's, I'm going to go right out on a limb and say it's a cult, in its most extreme versions. Yeah. Uh, I think the question that most of our listeners are dying to know is was Jesus a Republican or a Democrat? The ultimate independent. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I, you know, I, ju- I, I jest, but sometimes I think that regardless of which side of the political s- sphere you may come from or find yourself in, one tends to uh, pretty quickly slot Jesus into a category, a political category, and apologies to our, our Canadian listeners and Australian listeners and such, uh, your political parties are named differently, but I think we all fall into the same trap of, well, you know, if you... Right or left. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And really, uh, his, I think that some of what Jesus had to say is going to resonate more on the right, and some of it is absolutely going to resonate more on the left. And I think we've got to live in that tension of no political party is the answer. Jesus is the Jesus answer. Jesus is the answer. And today we talked a little bit again about truth because that's mm-hmm. one of the themes of John's letter. And uh, truth is hearing him and doing what he said. Yep, absolutely. Uh, there's <laughs> politics. They always say don't talk about that at Thanksgiving. Uh, we can talk about it on the podcast. If you want to send us an email with any questions on that stuff, I'd be happy to engage with you over email on that as well. Um, all right. So verse 22 says, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Mm. I saw that, and I wondered how many people have read that and immediately actually disengaged or uh, assumed that John's talking to somebody other than themselves. Like, I, well, not me. I'm not anointed. I'm, you know, I'm just a mm-hmm. mechanic. I'm just mm-hmm. a teacher, whatever mm-hmm. it is. I'm not the one anointed to do teaching or to do healing or whatever. Is John talking to everybody? Is everybody anointed by the Holy yes. Spirit? Or Yes. Okay. Um, next question. No, uh, because it is my firm conviction that when when we turn our hearts and our lives to Christ, yeah. you know what John three calls being born from above or born mm-hmm. again, uh, the Holy Spirit begins to reside in a in a whole new life breathing way in us, and so that is another way of saying you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. Remember, John is talking specifically to a a shaken up group of churches Mm. that are told that they don't have the anointing, that these other guys have the anointing. So he's he's speaking in that context. You can have a confidence. Uh, I told that that story with Pastor Bob, and um, one of the reasons I told it is, besides letting people know how personally applicable it is, is that I have been reminded of that again and again and again. When I have felt unsure, am I doing the right thing? Is this... And just... Now, it's not bravado. It's the opposite, Mm. right? Because the whole cruciform love. But it is a quiet confidence in him working. Yeah. Um, You... That that confidence uh, reminds me of something you said very early on in today's teaching about taking risks. And um, mm. when we're following Christ, sometimes he calls us, the, being obedient may require taking some pretty big risks. Uh, you've got some experience with taking some big risks, as do I, as do many of our listeners. But I think sometimes there's a, a questioning of, is this 
is this actually Jesus calling me to take this risk? Like this one is a big one, and this could cost us big time as a family, uh, career, whatever it is. How do we know when <laughs> when we're the risk we're taking is one that he's calling us to or we're just being crazy? Because the world will look at what we're doing very often and say, well, that's insane, right? That's career suicide, or why would you— The church will do that yeah, too. Exactly. I know this firsthand. Yeah. Well-meaning people. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's two parts to this question. Number one, A, on the continuum between standing pat, staying safe, and going out there, mm. the the church uh, is so far over on the stay safe side, it's not even negotiable. Yeah. But secondly, when he calls you, I look for confirmation. For me, uh, there's there's some folks who have a long, rich history with me uh, who who hear the Lord and I listen for confirmation. Mm-hmm. I don't just say, well, he told me this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I listen for confirmation. Uh, and I think that's really important. Yeah. Um, and even you know that within our own family, and there's been many big moves, uh, we've never done anything until we've both individually heard the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, and I I would say I would just echo, reaffirm that. Uh, be sure you're plugged into a community where you've got trusted voices that you know hear from the Lord and are rooting for you. Uh, yes, and uh, <laughs> love to dream big with you, and uh, and then go to them and say, Hey, this is what I feel like the Lord's saying. And and you're absolutely right. By the way, if that's in the context of a of a marriage, then that should always be a we. This is what we hear the Lord saying. Um, and wait for that to resonate with others and, and receive yep. that confirmation. Yep. Um, absolutely. Bethany and I actually just did that in the last few weeks, uh, sensed that the Lord was saying something to the two of us. And so we went to some of our closest trusted friends and said, what do you think? And they said, yep, that's the Lord. And by the way, I should say this, that that is so vital because I promise you, when you take those risks, there will come a day, and not long after you take that risk, when you are, <laughs> when you are suddenly, in a, in a, honestly, in a moment of panic of, oh my goodness, what have I done? Why did I make this choice? Uh, why did we take this risk? And when you can look back at the confirmation that you received and know without a shadow of a doubt, that this was the Lord's direction, that, the, that God has called you to this place, it will give you that confidence in those moments. So those moments of panic will be very short-lived because you can come right back to the, oh, no, we did uh, we did seek the Lord. We sought the Lord with our trusted friends and family, and we got confirmation. And so that means God's got us because uh, he's not going to send us out here and just hang us out to dry. Um because those moments are coming. So be sure to go through that process uh, because you're going to need there it. There will be testing. Absolutely. Look at the, look at the way Matthew's narrative goes. Yeah. There's an anointing, right? Yep. And then immediately out into the wilderness. Yep. Absolutely. And, and then he returns in the power of the Spirit. Yep. Absolutely. Um one final thing. Are you okay if we go with one more yeah, question? There's so much good stuff, and, and I did. Uh, I think I, <laughs> I asked last time, uh, were you really going to do a whole chapter? Uh, but now that you have, I'm going to ask questions about the whole chapter. Um, you talked about John making it clear that we must choose between the world and God. Like, are we going to love the world or are we going to love God? And I, I understand that in his context, but I wonder if 
by making that choice, we've pushed it too far to where people actually disengage from the world in terms of caring for the planet, caring for our fellow man, like engaging yep. in uh, in actually participating in, in the great rescue plan that Christ initiated on the cross, uh, and instead sit back and say, well, I love God, and this world is on its own, and I'm, I'm going to heaven, so I'm good. I got my eternal life. I'm just going to wait for, for that to kick in. Because uh, I think that that happens. There is an attitude like that. Um, what is... How do we caution people against just checking out because if we don't have to love the world, then I ain't going to love the world? Well, for one thing, um, what John's implying in verses 12 through 14 is he's taken us further than love your neighbor. Hmm. It's your family. Yeah. And uh, you don't check out from your family. I think clearly he's not talking about that or relationships yeah. there, and that's a misuse of it. But he is, and that's why I love the the New Living Translation. Yeah. I mean, he's talking about the, the the universal tug of the world. Remember, that's the whole systems, that's the yeah. powers that mm-hmm. be toward having the things of the world. I, I want to get a, a great new car. I want to get this. I want to get that. Um, and there's nothing wrong with a new car. But there is, if that becomes, wow, that's what I'm really excited about. Um, and so I don't think at all, we should disengage. I'll talk a little next week about that, too, in terms of just statistically yeah. where we're at uh, in terms of the values of the world. Yeah. And um, but, uh, but at the same time, we can't, yeah, we can't just ignore, am I my brother's keeper? It'd yeah. be pretty easy to slip into that. Yeah. And frankly... Too much of evangelicalism. I'm being really hard on the church today. I don't mean to, but but too often, too often, that's what happens. Yeah. I'm in a city with thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless, and we have hundreds and hundreds of churches yeah. that if they said, we're going to, you know, I was a stranger and you invited me in. Mm-hmm. Right or uh, Hebrews thirteen two that we unawares we entertain. If we really believed Matthew twenty five, we wouldn't have all of that. Yeah. So yeah, we can't ever use that as an excuse to opt out. But boy, we can sure use it to check our own hearts. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all right. That's it for this week, but I want to say this. If you are looking for ways to love your brother and sister uh, on the other side of the planet, those who are in need of eternal life right now, and that means, by the way, that means uh, life in Christ, but that also means having nutrition, having a roof over your head, having clean water to drink, um, head to impactnations.com, have a look around at some of the active projects we've got going on, uh, and just ask the Lord how he would have you engage with loving your brother, loving your sister from around the world, because there are plenty of opportunities right now uh, to engage in bringing abundant life to others, uh, and we would love to have you partner with us. Uh, So you can do that at impactnations.com. And then just hit that red give button uh, and participate with us. Um, 
We are here every Thursday, and we would love to have you with us on uh, YouTube if that's where you like to watch. Uh, I believe we also post this on Facebook each week. Uh, you can also just listen if you want to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Just search for the Impact Nations podcast, and there we are. Uh, we've been doing this for six seasons, so if you're new to uh, the Impact Nations podcast, uh, be sure to check out some of the back catalog as well because uh, there is some excellent, excellent stuff there from uh, the last several years. Thank you so much for being with us every week. Uh, we will be with you again next week for, I'm guessing, First John Chapter 3. Probably. <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a good week. Bye-bye.